Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. This is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It is indeed a pleasure to have you with us for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And today we celebrate the life of a man who made his mark in football over 250 games, but he also joined one of the most elite clubs in the game, that of a Brownlow medalist. And he's making a mark in other ways in football at the moment. Adam Cooney is my guest. Coons, welcome. Hey Donners, good to be with you again. We've spent a few Sundays together this year, so I do apologise for that. We've got two professionals, ultimate pros in the front bench, yourself and Jared Waitley, and unfortunately you've got me and Spud no, working closely behind you. Not unfortunate at all, because it's something that I enjoy every Sunday and every time that we're together, and it's something that you seem to have fitted into pretty well. Was it a natural progression for you, because you've handled the progression very well? Uh, I've always had an interest in doing some media work. I didn't know I'd go headlong into it once I retired. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, to be honest with you, when I finished up. It just so happened that uh, I retired before the end of the season in 2016. So I got to do a month of uh, trialling, I suppose you could call it, in the media. Uh, My first game that I did special comments for was uh, Sydney GWS in their first final. So uh, I got a taste of it then and just seemed to really love it. I didn't think that I would be heavily involved in the media once I finished footy because... When you start, when you, I played for 13 years and that takes up every weekend, basically. So I wanted my weekends back when I finished footy and it didn't really work out that way, but it, it has been an enjoyable uh, 18 months. Over your playing career, what was your relationship like with the media in general? Uh, I was always pretty open to the media, uh, unless it was a loss. After a loss, generally uh, you get the media request. The media manager might come up and say, oh, can you do an interview for radio and I would say no a lot of the time, which uh, I think I've burnt a few people over the years <laughs> saying no for media interviews, but I think I was generally pretty open. There was a few players who just said no flat out, and um, I was always generally pretty open to it. Early on in my career, I didn't um, realise, I suppose, the value that the media could add to the game and showing off a bit of your personality. But once I got older and a bit more mature, I realised that um, you can actually show a bit of personality and and show people what you are actually like off the football field. Let's turn the clock all the way back and turn the clock back to where it all began for you and you grew up in Adelaide. I did grow up in Adelaide, yes. I'm an Adelaide boy. I was born uh, just down the hill. There's uh, two parts of Adelaide, the flat and up the hill. So I, was, I, was, I lived up the hill but I was born uh, on the flat. So, yeah, I was a naughty little boy growing up. I find that hard to believe. (laughs) I was a bit cheeky uh, as a youngster, but I I started playing footy when I was four. So before I 
I uh, went to primary school. My brother was two years older, and I, I played in his team. So I was uh, I was lucky enough to get a good start, a good jump on it early, but even before I started primary school. And footy was really the only thing that I was good at as a youngster. But yeah, I had one brother, and we got up to a fair bit of mischief. Uh, when we were younger, that's that's fair to say. Define mischief. Was it um, just the things that boys do or was it a bit more serious than that and you could have easily gone down the wrong path? <laughs> uh, I think when I was 13 was when I could have gone down the wrong path and certainly did at times. My parents split up when I was 12. So I was in grade 7 at the time and I actually, mum moved out, so me and my brother stayed at home living with dad, and dad didn't cope really well with it at the time, so it was a bit of a, it was an interesting house um, to be involved in, it's fair to say, so there was probably 12 months or two years there where I was 12 to 13, where we didn't, we were a bit lost, me, dad, and my brother, we we didn't really know how to handle life without mum there. I went to mum's maybe once or twice, one night a week, let's say. But the other time was uh, was a bit of a struggle. Dad was, was struggling a bit. So we were sort of left up to our own devices a little bit, me and my brother. We would Sometimes we would take dad's car down the shop when we were 13. And um, I, was, I, started, I actually started drinking when I was 13, I think. Um, and, yeah, we got up to, we got up to a fair... A fair bit of mischief in that period, but I always loved playing footy. Uh, sometimes I would um, drink a little bit uh, excessively during the week leading into games. Never a night before a game, but certainly on a Thursday night we'd we'd have a fair crack. But yeah, I was a naughty little boy, but always had footy to fall back on. If I, if I didn't play footy, then uh, I don't know what I'd be up to. But there's a few of my mates that were in the same boat that were that were lucky that we we did have that that footy environment to be involved in. Everybody Coons who tells a story like this talks about someone who stopped them at that fork in the road and said, "Righto, if you keep on going down this path, you're going to find yourself in trouble." Was there one particular person in your life who almost woke you back up and said, "This is not what you should be doing"? Uh, not. There was no moment or no one person. I guess I was just lucky that I was talented as a junior, to be honest with you. And uh, there was under I was always involved in the um, in the South Australian team. So I played for the SA team in the under twelves, I believe it was. And then I played two years in the under sixteens, and then uh, after the first year was selected in the under seventeen All Australian side. So that was the AIS at that stage. So they had a period of camps, and then you, we travelled overseas to Ireland to play the international rules game. So I suppose in the back of my mind, I was always training. And I always had something to look forward to. So footy was always there. And at the yeah, so and then I played two years of under eighteens for the South Australian side and I was playing senior footy with West Adelaide the year I was able to be drafted. So I was lucky and my best mate growing up uh, from about fifteen onwards was Bo Waters and he got drafted to West Coast and he was he was worse than me and he'd been through a lot more than me uh, as a youngster and he was me and him were similar in a lot of ways where we were pretty loose off the field but then when it came time to knuckle down and go to training we'd train we'd train hard we loved our footy um we loved partying off the field as well but I suppose we were lucky we did it together and I don't know if I I probably would have got drafted if it wasn't for Bo but 
Um, sometimes we, we pulled our heads in when we needed to. So the attention is there. You're playing for West Adelaide in the SANFL. Everybody can see what natural ability you've got. But the question mark, I guess, in the back of the recruiters' minds is the whole package that goes along with it. And everybody talks about baggage, if you like, is the word that they talk about. Was that ever raised with you when clubs were talking to you about moving into the big time? Um, yeah, it was. Not to the extent where I think that clubs were put off of me going there because they probably didn't realise what how bad it was and to the extent. I think if I went to the draft camp my draft year, it would have been exposed. I, I didn't go to the draft camp, so I was lucky in a way because I was still playing football for West Adelaide. We were involved in the finals, and I think draft camp was SANFL grand final week, so I didn't have to go. If I, if I did a 3K time trial, I would have finished probably last in that time trial and maybe slipped down to uh, first or second round. But I was lucky I was still playing at the time. So people didn't, uh, I suppose my lack of fitness or my lack of professionalism wasn't exposed against the best kids in the country. I was still playing footy at that time. So I was exposed pretty badly in the grand final though when I played in the back pocket and had five kicked on me by (laughs) Eddie Sainsbury and I actually got him drafted. So no worries, Ed. Uh, Speaking of being drafted, you were told a fair way out from the draft that you were going to be number one. Would it be fair comment to say that that was cause for celebration for you? (laughs) It was, yes. Back in those days, back in the good old days, the under-18 national chance was over a week. So you played the three games in one week in Melbourne and and that was it. So I played my three games. I actually tore my groin in the last game, so about halfway through the third quarter. So I didn't play out the whole series, but... I was in the I was named in the All Australian team. Came back. It was might have been the end of June, start of July. Uh, Western Bulldogs called Peter Road, came over. I had and Scotty Clayton. I had a meeting with them, and they basically said straight after the Under eighteen National Champs that it was looking likely that they were going to finish on the bottom of the ladder, and they were going to pick me as a number one pick. So, in my head, I was already an AFL superstar at that stage. So, trotted around like a peacock in Adelaide, frequented just at about every uh, establishment that could be in Adelaide, thinking that I'd, I'd already made it, didn't train hard enough, didn't prepare myself for life at AFL level. I was still playing at that stage for West Adelaide. We'd go out every Thursday night, um, skip school on Friday, and then and then play SNFL on the Saturday, go out all Saturday night, go out all Sunday night, um, skip school on Monday, maybe roll in on a Tuesday. That was That was my life. It was... When I look back on it now, I think, what the hell was I thinking, getting myself ready for life as an AFL player and doing that it's just unbelievable and kids wouldn't get away with it these days I changed schools I went to Blackwood High up to 8 to 11 and year 12 I changed to a school closer to me because all my friends were there and there was no uniform there was no rules there was no regulation I I did three subjects so in, in year 12 so I would start school I would roll in at lunchtime if I was, if they were lucky, if they were lucky to have me, so I, I didn't care about school. Um, all I wanted to do was hang out with my friends and and drink. <laughs> it's a very interesting introduction into the big time, and uh, that number one draft pick was eventually made, and you did make your way to the big time. We'll talk about that when we come back on the other side of the break. Adam Cooney is my special guest on this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. More with Coons after the break. This is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
And it's great to have the Brownlow medalist Adam Cooney with me as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Coons, when you came over to the big time, uh, boy from Adelaide, what was your accommodation like? Who did you stay with? First night I stayed with the uh, player welfare manager. So the draft was on the weekend, uh, Sunday night. We flew from Adelaide to Melbourne, pack your bags and away you go. I cried myself to sleep that first night and then uh, fronted up to training on the Monday. Um, I think we did a pedestrian little warm-up of 10 100s just to get the legs going and I got through four of them, vomited everywhere and then went and hid in the change rooms thinking, (laughs) I can't do this. And I, I think the Bulldogs were thinking at that stage, what have we got ourselves involved with here? I had no runners. Uh, I did my first uh, two weeks of pre-season in skate shoes that I had worn down from skateboarding before I came over. I had no money. Um, I had to borrow money off my manager when I got to Melbourne to get a pair of footy boots. It's fair to say I wasn't prepared for training at that stage. But, uh, I moved in with Daniel Jean Gian- Syracuse's mum and dad. So they were my host family for the first 12 months, and, and they were great to me. The, Jen did everything for me. She was my Melbourne mum. Did you appreciate that? Uh, again, looking back on it, I what a horrendous person I was when I was 18. I never offered to do the dishes. I never did my own washing, didn't make my bed, ne- very rarely even picked up my plate and put it in the sink. I was, when I look, again, reflecting back on it, I had so much, I was so immature and so inexperienced at life and it's just really selfish of me. And I do thank them for everything they did because... Uh, they didn't get any recognition from me. So hopefully they, they listen to this. And thanks for everything you did, Joe and Jen, because um, you really did settle me into Melbourne life in my first year. All of a sudden, going from all of this, where discipline is not your thing, you're just running your own race, you're so used to doing that, you come into a system which is notoriously um, a system that doesn't take kindly to that sort of thing. When did you get pulled into shape? When did you realise that you had to pull your finger out? Otherwise, you wouldn't make a go of this AFL footy caper. Well, again, my first year where uh, I was overweight and unfit, I was lucky. Peter Road was coaching at the time, and I did an okay preseason. My skin folds were almost a club record at the time when I got drafted. Certainly, they would have been for a number one draft pick. So I had a lot of work to do, and it took me a couple of years to to lose that fat. But I I played round one, so and I didn't probably deserve to play around one but that was where the club was sitting at the moment Peter Road wanted to get as much games into the younger players as possible so and although he didn't last out the year I'm very thankful that he gave me my start when I probably didn't deserve it and kept playing me when I wasn't playing well so I played 19 games in my first year and again that 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 really set me up for my second and third year of footy but it probably didn't address the issues that around professionalism and diet uh, and how hard I needed to train because I was getting games and I was 18 years old and the number one draft pick. So I thought, well, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And uh, it was a pretty inconsistent first season. I got my act together towards the end of the year with in terms of some form um, and then built in from there. But it, it took a long time to adjust to AFL life, professionalism, what was required to be a consistent player. Things were starting to roll along at the football club when you first got there. They were down the bottom of the ladder. Wins were scarce, but there were signs that things were changing and it was going to become a very good era for the team. We'll talk about from a personal 
perspective in a moment, of course, but from a team perspective, there were those preliminary finals where the team was stiff not to make it into at least one grand final. Yeah, 2008, 2010, I don't think we were good enough. 2009 is the one that still burns and took a long time to watch that prelim final. We speak about players who can't watch a grand final loss or go through even a a heartbreaking prelim loss. It took a a while for me to look back on that game and watch it. And uh, I did quite recently, actually. I think it was was on uh, one of the, the old highlights of the classic games or something like that. And watched the last quarter in the 2009 grand final and we had op- opportunities to win that game it was it was just about executing late in the game that cost us um like 2008 I was injured through the final series so I couldn't I couldn't really run so I can't remember too much about that other than I didn't perform very well 2009 <clears throat> although I was sore uh, I think I, I played okay in the prelim final but watching it in the last quarter um, the moments that stick out for me, in, certainly in the 2009 prelim, are the Nick Revolt diving after halftime. And I say diving because he went down uh, quite easily when Brian Lake tapped him. Um, so we, not that I'm still bitter about that. Or no, no. <laughs> and then the, just moments in the last quarter where they had a spare back. It may have been Sam Fisher where at times we just kept bombing the ball in. I had two or three occasions myself where I kicked the ball long in the last quarter straight to Sam Fisher and we just needed to adjust better as a side and, as they say, lower the vision and, and hit a couple of lead-up options. Daniel G and Syracuse uh, miss one on the left foot late. Lindsay Gilby missed one on the run, who never does. So, yeah. And it's about taking your opportunities in big games like that. 2009 was our year, I think, that uh, that really we missed out. All right, let's turn the clock back from that year, 2009, where you could have made the grand final to the year before. When you turned up to crown on that night, did <laughs> you think you had a chance? I did think I had a chance, if I'm honest. Yeah, uh, not too many people did. And I think as the years go by... Um, people don't realise that um, I actually did have quite a consistent season. Um, so uh, around 15 or around 16, I worked. I, I was a Brownlow. I think I was into favourite. So And then the last four or five weeks, I dropped off a little bit, had a couple of good games. So I thought I would poll well early and then get overtaken late. Uh, but I was about 13 or $14 on the night um, and, and favourite throughout the year so I thought I was in with a chance I remember round one we played pretty sure it was the Adelaide Crows and I had a good game and I remember saying to my wife if I don't get three votes in round one I can't win it and Andrew Demetrio began the vote count with started the wrong round that's right so he got the round wrong and I didn't get any votes and I thought oh well the, the night's over not the night's over but my night was over and then, so he read the votes so he, for round two. He read them for round two, yeah. and then came back, read the votes for round one, and I'm pre- I think I got three in round one. So I thought, oh, well, I'm off to a pretty good start here. So did you stay off the ink for the rest of the night? <laughs> I wish I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we came off Mad Monday uh, because, uh, as you said, we lost the prelim final. So we're at the pub at ten o'clock in the morning, and uh, I probably should have eased back, knowing that we had to walk the red carpet later that evening but you know you get carried away in the moment I think I may have been dressed as a giant sperm 
uh, all day at the pub. So Didn't think about keeping that on for it, the Brownlow. It was interesting going, dressing uh, as a giant sperm to rolling in, in the tux and then winning a Brownlow. I tell you what, though, it was it's remembered as one of the more endearing Brownlow acceptance speeches. It's possibly I didn't know what I was saying. Yeah, because you were reasonably <laughs> relaxed. In fact, you were relaxed as a newt at one stage. <laughs> um, but uh, it it is regarded as something that, a lot of people remember, you know, some people don't remember Brownlow acceptance speeches. Everybody remembers yours for some reason. It's probably because it wasn't rehearsed. Yeah. Maybe. I didn't write down uh, who I... I didn't thank Rodney Ede, which was a, an error, given that he was the coach at the time. But uh, some of the questions, the, the remarks and my answers were just off the cuff because I wasn't prepared in uh, who I needed to thank, what I needed to say. Um, to talk about my year, I just and after a few of uh, Colton and United's finest, it's the the memory's a bit foggy. So I, I know the the burgering story, which seems to be more famous now than the actual victory, but I will never live that down. Unfortunately, what? How did Hales cope with that on the night? Ah, uh, she was okay. I think like everyone on my table, they were just shocked that I'd won. Um, to be honest with you, she. I don't think she thought I was any chance of winning. Um, but it was a bit of it was a bit embarrassing for her, no doubt, and probably p- pretty embarrassing that I um, even thought about that, asking her to marry me and using a burger ring. Because again, another thing that I look back on with regret in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all seemed to work out okay. Yeah, it's worked out. All right. Everything's We're still going well. still cruising along. Still got the burger ring at home in a box. Have you? Yeah, our youngest Evie took a. Uh, munch out of it recently, but it's still hanging around. All right. That could be the most famous burger ring in the history of this country, <laughs> uh, and certainly in the history of football. No endorsement from burgering. Oh, uh, well, uh, the uh, day is only early. Uh, <laughs> as this program goes to air, there could be an exec from Burger Ring who is about to get on the phone to... <laughs> well, I don't need him now. We'll find out more from the Brownlow medalist, Adam Cooney, when we come back on the other side of the break. This is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. This is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Great to have the Brownlow medalist, Adam Cooney, with us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. So the Brownlow happens, those preliminary finals happen, but the body was starting to feel the effects of football and it got pretty serious. 2008 uh, was when I originally injured my knee and it was the first final. Again, you mentioned I'm not not big on the history of the game. I'm yes. pretty sure we played Hawthorne in the first final in 08. And I came in at half time, and my knee had swelled up pretty significantly. And I said to the docs, this don't look right. And um, they said, no, it doesn't look great, does it? So um, so half time of the, of the first qualifying final, I had a couple of locals to uh, ease the pain because it was by that stage it was pretty painful and played played out the second half. And then it, it really blew up post-game. <clears throat> Spent a couple of days icing it and then went for scans on the Monday. Turned out that I'd fractured the patella. And it must have... I can't remember the incident. And I can't find the vision anywhere. I wish I could remember actually what happened and how I did it. But it was a, must have been a collision injury uh, which split the kneecap just sort of on the side. So... And at that stage, I was thinking, well, this this isn't great. My... Season's over. We, we've got another f- two finals, hopefully three, to play. So I had a chat with the doctor, um, sat down with the physio, and they said, "Look, it's you got a crack in your patella. The damage is done. It's up to you 
whether you want to play on or not. And obviously you put your hand up as a player. And so I, I had to train that week and spent the best part of the week trying to get the swelling down in the knee. Uh, trained with a local, blew up again. So then spent the next three days um, getting the swelling down and ready for the game. So, and then I played the game again with a couple of locals. Didn't I couldn't really run. I couldn't perform, which is really disappointing. Fine, big final series. Uh, I was a young player uh, at the top of my game in 2008, playing really well, and wasn't able to perform in that final series. So that was really disappointing. Got to the end of the season. I missed the All-Australian Awards uh, during the final series because I couldn't walk up on stage to, uh, to get my little trophy or whatever it was you received at that stage. So um, I had to, I think they called up, they called up sick for that because I couldn't actually uh, walk and I didn't want to give away that I was injured during that final series. Went in <clears throat> surgery at the end of 08. Um, they actually removed the part of the patella that was cracked. So they sliced it off. I really like that back now in hindsight. That'd be good. And they found oh, there was a fair bit of damage that was actually underneath the kneecap. So underneath the patella had sheared away the majority of my cartilage uh, underneath the patella. So... From there, and obviously, you know that once your once your cartilage is gone, it, there's no coming back. So, from about 22, and after the surgery, it just didn't feel right. I remember doing my rehab, and I was ticking the legs over on an exercise bike, and it was it was a bit of pain even ticking the legs over when I was riding. So, I thought, well, this is not good. I've just had surgery. I should be cherry ripe from here. And I did the preseason leading into 09, and then it, I was in. I wasn't in a lot of pain, but I was just niggling away. So I, I mentioned it to the doctors and they said, oh, you might have a bit of cartilage flapping off. So I went in for surgery, I think after three or four rounds, got it cleaned up again, missed two weeks and then came back to play. And from there, it just got progressively worse and worse. And I had a number of surgeries on it, but every time I had surgery on it, it would just get worse and worse and worse. And it got to the point where I just couldn't run. I couldn't do leg weights. So I, I really couldn't do anything. And um, that was a pretty bitter pill to swallow at the time. And you went to great lengths to try and get this done, you know, radical treatments. There was, I think they took some blood out of you and re-injected it at some stage. Mm. Yeah, so 2011, 2012 was when it got to the point where at games where we were walking up the race, I was th- walking up the race in pain because of the incline that we had to walk <laughs> up and... I was thinking each week, how am I going to actually go out there and get through a game of footy? So I sat down with Gary Zimmerman at, at the time and said, look, this is where I'm at. Well, I actually couldn't do a, I couldn't do a body weight squat in the gym. So I was weak. Uh, I had no agility. I couldn't run because of the pain. And I sat down and said, look, and, and Gary said, look, it might be time for you to retire because there's nothing you can really do. And I thought, there's got to be something. There's got to be something out there. And I, was, I would always sort of scroll through the internet trying to find any piece of information that I thought could help. And I stumbled across an article on ESPN about Kobe Bryant, who had had <clears throat> some knee issues and went to Germany and saw a doctor over there and came back and played really well. And um, I emailed the doctor. Uh, they came back and said, yeah, there's only a certain level of damage you can have to your knee before um, for, for us to treat it. So I, I I went to the club and I spoke to the club about what was happening and they weren't um, very supportive of it, it's fair to say, because they didn't know what I was talking about. They didn't know this doctor in Germany. They'd never heard of him. Um, 
the Pope went there. So I thought, well, it's good enough for the Pope and it's good enough for Kobe Bryant. Who would have thought that Adam Kearney uh, and the Pope would have been mentioned in the same sentence? <laughs> I was on the on the podium too for three most famous people to have gone and see the German doctor. I think who's got me covered, the Pope or just as Kobe? well, just as well, you didn't know what costume you were wearing the day you won the Brownlow Medal. <laughs> So I did. Uh, I did a fair bit of research, and the club didn't want me to go because I suppose it was a bit experimental at that stage in terms of they didn't know what was happening. Because I said I'm going, whether you support it or not. So in the end, um, uh, kicking and screaming, I, I got my way. Went over there. Uh, I was lucky we got the London exhibition game that year, so the team was in London. So I was only an hour away in Dusseldorf in Germany. I had treatment over there for five days, which was five injections into the knee where they take blood from your arm, spin it in a centrifusion. I didn't ask questions. I just wanted my knee to get better. Um, It's all legal, of Mm -hmm. course, Um, all passed by WADA. And on the first day, I had my injection... Um, then just had a bit of a walk around, lay down for most of the day, came back second day, had it again. Um, no effects at all. And they, I was getting a bit worried at that stage, thinking, oh, this is a waste of time. I've wasted my money. I've wasted the club's money. Um, I'm going to come back and have to retire. And I sat down with a man from Brazil in the sec- on the second day there, and he was on his fourth day. And he had a really bad hip. And he was looking at getting a hip replacement and he couldn't walk up the stairs when he got there. And it was his fourth day and I sat down and had a bit of a chat to him and he was basically dancing around the waiting room, waiting to have his fourth injection. And he said it's the best thing that he's ever done in his life. And I was a bit sceptical at that stage because I said, look, I've, I'm t- this is my third day. It hasn't done anything. And I had my third injection and by that afternoon, the improvement in my knee was a I think it would have improved the pain by at least 70 percent and I had my injection on the fourth day and then the fifth and by the fifth day I was jumping around in my hotel room squatting um and then I went for a run which I I just walked outside and went for a run which I would have had to have done I would have had to have taken four or five painkillers, had 20 minutes of physio, warmed up for 20 minutes before I even thought about running. So I just, it was unbelievable how much um, the pain had decreased. So I went over uh, and, and joined the boys in London after that. And that, that, that really helped. It saved my career. Uh, I was able to play on for another few years, although it, it didn't last for the rest of my career. It, it certainly helped me um, get back in the gym, do some weights, and I was able to run again. There were other things that you were coping with towards the end of your career at the Western Bulldogs, and one was your relationship with Brendan McCartney. What was that like? Uh, it was strained. I didn't realise how bad it was or um, how bad the club was at that stage until probably the midway through point, uh, the midway through twenty fourteen, where. And it wasn't it wasn't just my relationship with Brendan McCartney. I was a, a senior figure, but uh, and I was in the leadership group at that stage. But I think the, it got to a point where midway through 2014, I think the players realised that he wasn't the right man for the job. And we had younger players, and I had a lot of I was pretty close with it. <clears throat> a lot of the younger players, and there was a lot going on at the club at that stage. Um, and he was my relationship with him was. Um, fractured because uh, he just didn't click with the senior players. He was His strengths were teaching the contested ball part of the game. And he was really good with the younger players at that, but for some reason he just didn't... 
he didn't connect with the senior players in the group. And by the end, he didn't connect with the younger players. And there were times at the club where I know younger players, just they didn't want to come to training. And they would confide in us and talk about the relationship and, and everything that was going on at the football club. I know at one stage there was a group of parents who sat down <clears throat> with Simon Garlic and the board to express their concerns about what was happening because their their kids were saying that they didn't want to go to training with their parents. And that was when the the warning lights were, were flashing loud and clear for me. So, well, And it all came to a head at the end of 2014, obviously. My exit meeting after... Uh, after the season, generally you go, you have your coaches in there, you you do your meeting, um, talk about your positives and negatives. And at the end of my meeting, all the coaches walked out and it was <laughs> Brendan McCartney, the, uh, Justin Cordy, who was the head of fitness at that stage, and Graham Lowe, <clears throat> who was the head of footy. And I thought, oh, this ain't good. And I had a year to run on my contract and we basically just talked about the back end of my year and the inconsistencies, not only of my year, but but everyone at the dogs at that stage. And we sat down and 2014, I changed, early on in the season, I changed everything about, I changed my diet, I changed the way that I trained, um, I was as lean as I've ever been, um, so I did, I was doing everything that I possibly could to uh, to get myself right, I, I played, I've played anywhere between 90 kilos and 82, so at that stage I was 82 kilos, so about 8 kilos lighter than what I played at my heaviest, and I was feeling really good, I was feeling really fit, and I got injured. So I did my hamstring, and then I didn't get disillusioned, but I was really disheartened that I'd done everything that I possibly could, and I still got injured. I got a soft tissue injury, and I really lost motivation towards the back end of the season. And the meeting with Brendan McCartney, I was pretty open and honest with him. I explained to him what happened, why I didn't wasn't playing well the back end of 2014, and how I'd lost motivation. And he basically, they basically sat down and said, with the direction that the club's going. Um, I had a year to run on my contract. That was either finished then, they were going to look to trade me, or I'd be playing VFL the next year. And um, he wanted to actually call. He wanted me to call him after the meeting and plead my case as to why I should stay at the football club. And I just thought didn't really sit well with me that I'd had to grovel to uh, the coach at that stage to keep my spot on the list. And he just didn't understand. He didn't understand what I was going through as a player and how long I'd played in pain. And it's when when you go out there, I understand that there's no excuses. But he just didn't take the time to to understand me as a person. And there was a lot that was going on at that stage. I had a meeting with Peter Gordon after that. Uh, Ryan Griffin was in in a similar boat. Sean Higgins obviously mm. left the football club, and um, I had a meeting with Peter Gordon and laid it all out on the table about the young players, how the senior group were feeling, how I didn't think that he was the right man for the job going forward. And he, it was a, it was, it was at the Brownlow on the Monday night. I talked to him for about half an hour, told him everything that was happening at the club, how everyone was feeling. And um, he said, oh, okay, look, thanks for telling me. It's great that you've told me this. I want to follow up. I'm going to give you a call and then we'll go, we'll go over it. And I didn't hear back from Peter Gordon. And I thought at that stage, Wow, I've, I've fallen on my sword here. Obviously, um, I rang my manager and said, "Look, this is the situation. Um, obviously, my time at the Dogs is has finished up." Uh, Ryan Griffin was in the same boat. Uh, he had a meeting with the board at that stage, explained everything that was happening at the football club. He said the same thing that didn't think Brendan McCartney was the right man for the job going forward. Heard back from the club 
Uh, he heard back from the club, which was nice. Um, and they said that they're going to back Macca in to be the coach going forward. So uh, Griff was in the same situation as me. He's basically said how the group's feeling, what's going on. Um, they backed Macca in, and then Griff said, well, looks like I'm going to have to leave as well. And it's interesting to hear some players who were at the club at the time. I think Bob Murphy said that Ryan Griffin could have handled the situation better as a captain of the footy club. Well, I strongly disagree with that. I think he did everything that he could for that group because he knew how the group was feeling and he knew what the group needed going forward. And And the club backed Brendan McCartney in, which is fine, but that forced me out. It forced Ryan Griffin out. Sean Higgins, I think, was uh, a different wavelength because he was a free agent. Um, he had some, some really good offers, but I think for the... And I get a lot of abuse from Western Bulldogs supporters because they think I, I wasn't loyal to the club and that I walked out on the club when things were really tough, but... Do you feel it's the other way around, that they didn't support you at the end? Uh, but that's... I don't... That's a decision that the club made at the time. Now, that's fine for them to back in the coach. It, it, after everything that I said to Peter Gordon, after everything that Ryan Griffin said to the footy club and the board and Simon Garlic, if they wanted to back him in, that's fine. But we had to leave after that. I didn't want to leave. I played at the club for 11 years. I wanted to finish my career as a Western Bulldogs player. What I did was try to help the group out, which I thought was the best thing going forward. They backed in the coach, which is fine, but that was that was the end of my career at the Western Bulldogs. I did everything I could for the group. It didn't they didn't back me in what I said, so I had to leave. They did the same thing with Ryan Griffin. He had to leave. We didn't want to leave. There's no. I, I didn't want to leave the Western Bulldogs. I think Ryan Griffin didn't want to leave the Western Bulldogs. It was the situation and the circumstance that we tried our best to. And this is. It seems like I'm having a massive crack at Brendan McCartney, but he just wasn't the right man for the group. He wasn't getting the best out of the senior players. He wasn't getting the best out of the younger players. And when younger players are coming to me saying that they don't want to go to training and their parents are um, having meetings with the club saying that their kids don't want to go to training, and these are premiership players now, some of these kids, so it's not like they're mentally fragile. And that's, that, that was a warning sign for me. And, I'd, look, I did all I could to try and stay at the club with um, who I know. I thought Brendan McCartney wasn't the right man going forward. They backed him in. We left, and it turns out that he left anyway. So mm. I think they realised at that point that maybe he, he wasn't the right man for the job. Divorces are never easy. Uh, time is on the wing, but after the divorce, you move on, and you moved on to another football club. When we come back on the other side of the break, I'll talk about your time at Essendon when your career comes to an end as a player, and also your reaction to that day, that beloved football club that you had that day in 2016. Our final segment with Adam Cooting. Coming up after the break on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. This is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Our final segment with Adam Cooney on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We said in the break this should be a trilogy. I reckon uh, it would have been handy to have some more time, but a couple of questions. What was your time like at Essendon? Because the football club had been through so much by the time you arrived there. It was emotional. Certainly the first uh, year didn't go to plan and I could have gone to North Melbourne, I could have gone to Essendon and I thought that, I knew it was a speculative investment to say the very least. I just thought that if Essendon could get through everything that they were going through with the supplement saga, they had more upside in terms of winning a flag. I watched Essendon play North at the MCG in the final and they were six goals up and they ended up getting rolled. Drew 
Petrie kicked a couple in the last quarter and did that Frank the Tank celebration, and mm. they went through the next round. But I just looked at that game and I thought, well, that's Essendon playing under a huge cloud, an emotional cloud, and they there were six goals up in a final. I thought, and I looked at their list and I thought they had a tremendous upside if they could get through this supplement saga. And I wasn't a hundred percent reassured that it was going to be fine. I was ninety percent reassured that it was going to be fine. So. Look, I backed everyone in the club, and I truly believe that they thought that everything would be fine. They would be found not guilty, and we would move on and move forward. And for a while there, when the original verdict came was handed down that the players were found not guilty, it was like a new football, a brand new football club, mm. and the players were happy. It was jovial. They'd finally got this um, supplement scandal behind them, and then the appeal came in 2015, and that's when players like Job and who'd bore the brunt of everything that had happened over the last three or four years. He couldn't go on anymore. He'd had enough. And I think that was the tipping point for the players. And it just so happened that it was my first year at the footy club. And there was there was a fair bit of angst towards Hurdy, which is fair enough. And I just don't think the players could get themselves up to play at their best anymore. And I probably went there at the worst possible time in terms of the supplements um, saga and everything that was going on there. So it was a turbulent time no doubt about that and I'll look back on it and think well should I have gone to North Melbourne because that was that was the safer bet and they made a prelim final but would I have made a difference to getting them to a grand final and winning it I'm not too sure and finally you bring down the curtain 250 games great career the Brownlow medal behind you but you're out there running around in 2016 a year when your old team won the flag what was your gut reaction when the final siren blew in the grand final? <laughs> uh, I have described it as it's a little bit like seeing your ex-wife win Powerball. <laughs> You've invested so much time and emotion into it, but you just don't reap any of the rewards. So it, it was a bit like that. Um, it was certainly bittersweet, knowing that guys I played with for the majority of my career, Dale Morris, Matthew Boyd, the guys who had been through so much, they deserved to have that success, I would have been great if I was out there with them. Um, so, look, it was bittersweet. I was in the stands with Libba Senior, um, Scotty West, Brian Lake, <clears throat> all in tears. They, those guys were all in tears. And, um, look, no doubt they would have been, not Brian because he bloody won three of them, but they would have been jealous and envious about what the players were going through. But they were just so happy that finally the Bulldogs had won one. And uh, I couldn't be, I w- if I'm honest, I wasn't, 100% happy about it because I would have loved to have been out there. But uh, it is what it is. I got to do my lap of honour before the game in the Toyotas. And that was that was a great moment because it was a chance for me to say goodbye to Dogs fans. And we have to say goodbye to you because unfortunately we've run out of time. There's so much more we could have talked about. But um, you are a breath of fresh air. It's always a pleasure to sit beside you in the commentary box but we're just physically there the people that you listen to I think um, get a lot from you as an ex-player a recent ex-player and your honesty today and your honesty in the commentary box is something that I think a lot of people appreciate oh thank Thank, you Pete thanks for coming in it's been a a delight to talk to you see you this afternoon yes look forward to it Adam Kearney my guest on this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funeral celebrating lives hope you can join us for another edition of the program next week
Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.